But if you look at anything plausible amount of spending, they can finance it. I mean, it's, it'll get financed. It'll get the money debt will get created. The flows will be circular, and there's there's no real problem with that. Like, it's what's going to go wrong, and you can't really point to like you could say, yeah, okay, maybe you know fifth. 11 quadrillion dollars. Okay, that's maybe too much. But the thing is, why do you need 11 quadrillion dollars for? You don't. Welcome to Activist NNT, a podcast about real-world economics, including modern money theory, and how life changes when you discover it. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today I talk with author, financial analyst, and applied mathematician, Brian Romanchuk. We talk about his journey from mainstream economics to Minsky to NMT, and his experience writing the 2021 book, Modern Monetary Theory and the Recovery. He also describes some of his concerns regarding the common assertion that government spending always comes before taxation. This is part one of a three-part conversation In parts two and three, we discuss the many varied techniques used by bad faith critics of MMT, which more broadly are the techniques used by simple bullies who want their followers to think that they're not. The second two parts were inspired by chapter five in Brian's book, his recent appearance on MMT podcast, and my own post documenting several good faith critiques and the MMT responses to them, a link to which can be found in the show notes. Regarding the assertion that government spending always precedes taxation, Brian's concerns are not related to its accuracy. In my view, it remains a valuable and important insight. Rather, the problem is that it's a cycle that can only be resolved by going back, in the words of Fadl Kaboob, to the beginning of the beginning. After that, it's so close to a chicken and egg question that in the context of public conversations, it can sometimes cause more problems than it solves. Instead, Brian suggests asking why the assertion is so important. The answer is the assurance that the national government, the currency issuer, can never default on its obligations. In other words, regardless whether the chicken or the egg came first, the government can always pay its bills. If you like what you hear, then I hope you might consider becoming a monthly patron of Activist MMT. Patrons have exclusive access to several full-length episodes right now. A full list, each with a brief highlight, can be found in the show notes. Patrons also get the opportunity to ask my academic guests questions, such as my recent episode with Warren Mosler. They also support the development of my large and growing collection of Learn MMT resources. 
To become a patron, you can start by going to patreon.com slash activistmmt. Every little bit helps a little bit, and it all adds up to a lot. Thanks. And now, on to my conversation with Brian Romanchuk. Enjoy. Um, so hi, <laughs> how are hi. you? What time oh, are you? Pretty good. Uh, what? Uh, what time it is? It's yeah. just just after nine. Oh, so you're right. You're right. Okay, we're in the same time zone. You're in uh, what's what city? Mon- Montreal. Montreal. Okay. Okay. Um, where are you? I'm in. Uh, I'm right uh, across from Philly in New Jersey. Okay. So about two hours north, but two hours south of uh, New York. So, uh, uh, okay. All right. Well. Uh, Thank you for doing this. It's nice to finally meet you, and uh, you you have my questions. Uh, so, okay, yeah, no, I got them. The uh, I'll, I'll be honest, I haven't been worrying too much about MMT. So, <laughs> you haven't been <laughs> what? A, I haven't been worrying about MMT too much recently. It's been all kinds of other issues. So, uh, uh, I have not been keeping up with the latest controversies, <laughs> wherever <laughs> they are. What what uh, what's going on? Yeah. Well, I mean, I've got various projects, consulting, some of my other writing. And uh, in in terms of what's happening, it's sort of all worrying about inflation and stuff. So that's uh, if I'm reading about that, sort of the big worry, oh, no, how much are they going to hike rates, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So. What are your other major interests beyond like economics and MMT? Um A bit of bike riding, but yeah, I'm sort of not getting out too much. I mean, I play video games, read that sort of thing. But uh, <laughs> okay, yeah, it's not well to show that I don't get out too much. What's curling? Uh, it's uh, it's you know it's it's in the Winter Olympics. The uh, if you follow it at all, it's it's uh, it's a game you try and get your uh, you know played on ice. You're trying to get rocks into uh, the circles and you're trying to get them closer than the other team it sounds like a the larger version of shuffleboard basically uh yeah you can't bounce off the sides but but yeah it's, it's a team game and uh i mean it's uh, there is a lot of skill i mean it uh it, it's in a sense a bit like golf in mm. that like the way you deliver everything has to be done correctly or you're going to miss. So it, it, it takes a lot of skill uh, just like for the mechanics to, to, you know, at least be consistent. I mean, you can get lucky shots, but uh, to be consistent, you, you really have to, uh, you know, practice, and be flexible, which I'm not. And, uh, <laughs> um, but uh, it's, no, it's, it's fun. But like I said, it's uh, shut down here. I mean, it's in the Olympics, but uh, our, our curling club is shut down now. Mm, okay. Um, uh, okay. All right. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, I have, why, why don't we just get right into it? So okay. on NMT podcast, you know, you, you recently did part of your conversation was on what we're going to get more into today. Um, you described your journey to, to MMT. And I'd like to ask specifically not to rehash that, but okay, how did your discovering MMT change 
basically change your life professionally and personally if it did? The um, like in terms of learning about MMT, I guess I have to step a little bit back before that. My my training, I was uh, engineer. Uh, engineer sort of, I evolved into an applied mathematician, uh, control systems engineering, and I I did a doctorate in that. But the uh, the en- engineering. Uh, there was a recession in the mid '90s, and uh, basically, you know, things were a bit, bit slow in control systems. And I ended up jumping into finance. So I came in with no formal training. I had an interest in economics. I didn't know too much about it, but uh, I ended up working for a firm that did financial economics research. You know, mainly sort of programming, mathematical modeling. Later, I had to do market commentary. The, the firm itself was, um, you know, the, the economists are sort of, well, they're mo- sort of market-oriented, sort of eclectic views, not really what you'd call mainstream, not academic mainstream, but, you know, conventional. A lot of them had worked at the Bank of Canada. And, uh, actually, one of them was Stephen Polos, who ended up being the governor uh, after he left the, the firm, but the, that's beside the point. But in terms of learning, I actually picked up a lot from uh, Hyman Minsky. You know, you, you pick up an economics textbook about ma- macroeconomics, because it's the only thing I was interested in, and none of it made any sense. So, say, this is nothing, you know, this has no relationship to what I'm seeing when I'm writing about the markets, the stuff, you know, it's, it's going nowhere. But you read Hyman Minsky, and oh, yeah, okay, now, now he's talking about markets. It made sense. So, like a lot of people in markets, I would be a Minskyite, and and I presume this is before you discovered the Mosors. Well, this is before I discovered MMT. Yeah. So, the, okay. the, so to a certain extent, and and of course, like Hyman Minsky. You know, it's sort of, you could say, pre-MMT. I mean, I think there's a little bit debate, is he an MMT or not? But he was he was the supervisor for, for Randy Ray. So, you know, obviously there's a, a lineage uh, from Minsky to MMT, even if he's technically not an MMTer. But, you know, the, the lineage was there. So I, I worked, ended up, I was mo- working for... I guess you'd call it a pension fund and the fixed income teams, an analyst. And I think it was after the financial crisis. And I ran into, um, it, was, it was people from Warren Mosler's firm. And that's where I first heard of MMT. Uh, and then I uh, said, okay, all this. It was it basically was interesting because it was the first time sort of, say, okay, yeah, this finally makes sense. Because there were certain things I hadn't thought about, you know, sort of monetary operations I never would worry about. I just saw how interest rates acted. I never thought about digging in, okay, what are, you know, the nuts and bolts of the, the underlying the system? It seemed, you know, that wasn't my concern. And to sort of said, ah, and then it was basically them, and they, they were fixed income types. Warren, um, I met more Warren uh, Mosler a couple times, and that's the thing. So he he worked he worked in fixed income. So obviously we spoke the same language. It made sense. So that is how I uh, got sort of into it, and then I sort of followed on and. 
and to a certain extent, then I branched out and I read some of the post-Keynesian uh, literature. And I, some of the post-Keynesian literature, I mean, I'd looked at it and I was not greatly impressed, but I finally ran into ones that were more useful. Um, there was a monetary economics by uh, Lavoie and Godley, which, which is like one of the big books. And that that book was much clearer than uh, a lot of the literature. And that one sort of helped a lot in terms of a formal understanding of economics. So, you know, from MMT, I sort of got a better guide into uh, the post-Keynesian literature. In terms of how it affected me, I mean, to a certain extent, you could say I was pre-MMT. There, there, there was the terms of a policy conclusion, you know, I knew, you know, none of these countries, I, I followed Japan. I knew Japan wasn't defaulting. Basically, all M, what MMT did was it, it allowed me to explain what's going on in a cleaner fashion. To a certain extent, I mean, I, I looked at the data. I, I saw the, you know, I, I spent my life staring at databases of interest rates and debt mm-hmm. and inflation. So I, I knew how everything operated. It just, it gave me a cleaner way of explaining it. So that that's sort of where it fit in. And then later on, I've decided, okay, I had enough of, <laughs> no, no, enough of the nine to five life or eight to seven or whatever it was. And I uh, just, uh, I, I moved on now. Uh, I, I moved into consulting and writing, which is what I wanted to do. And obviously the writing about MMT was, uh, enjoy, it certainly has an audience. It's interesting. And so, that's that's part of what I do, but I, it's not everything I write is just MMT. It's sort of you could say MMT inspired, but uh, not you know it's a, a, a variety of topics. So I'm I'm sort of going through uh, topics of interest to me in uh, sort of a in sort of a planned order. That that's basically it. That's that's sort of been my evolution. Okay. Okay. Two things. Um. One is that you you read Minsky before you learned of MMT and Mosler and so on. So it seems to me that your transition to MMT was much smoother than like many people that I know, including myself. Their tra- I mean, I, you know, I didn't have an awareness of finance. You did. That's different, obviously. But like my introduction to MMT was a complete 180 to everything else I knew. So you're learning Minsky before that seemed to give you a much smoother transition into it. Well, certainly, because I mean, one of the things I ran into is that uh, I I had to cover Japan in the early two thousands, and basically, Japan is a place where theories about government finance go to die, at least mainstream <laughs> theories. Like every everyone was continuously wrong, everyone was tired about being wrong, and so uh, it was. It forced me to say, look, I mean, and so I had a natural skepticism. I didn't necessarily, I wouldn't have, I, at the time, I probably didn't have good answers, but I knew, you know, I could just point, yeah, Japan, you know, someone talks about debt GDP ratio, just go Japan, you know, and, and that was it. So, yeah, I mean, I came in very little theory because th- to be honest, the, uh, like I attempted any number of times to read various mainstream economics texts and they're just hopeless. I mean, <laughs> as, as, uh, you know, I'm trained as an applied mathematician, and it's just like, what are, what are what is this stuff? What are the, what are, these aren't models? Uh, the the <sighs> economics 101 is just terrible. Here's a couple of graphs. I mean, it's not a model, and and then the the 
the the more advanced stuff, the dynamic stochastic general equilibrium model or DSG, the DSG models is actually based on math or supposedly based on math from uh, control theory, like from 1960s control theory, <laughs> which I mean, to certain, it was abandoned by control engineers because it was terrible. Uh, <laughs> it it, uh, it didn't work, like because uh, it's all based on optimization and uh, actually, well, the, the, I mean, a test pilot got killed because of it because it just it's just too unstable in practice. You don't want to be running optimizations, but the you know they they couldn't they can't even write out the math properly. It's like I'm saying, what are they doing? It's just you know every paper you sort of reading it and say, well, that sort of looks like math, but it there's always key steps where they don't know how to do it properly, and there's just these huge logical jumps. Like so, if you're following a proof, there's always a leap. And it's like, what are they doing? I, I, it, it's taken me years. I think I know what they're doing, but uh, it's, it's just embarrassing because they're not really, they're not taught by real mathematicians. They're taught, See, they're, they're taught by uh, economists, and so they're doing economist math, and they, they, they think they're rigorous, but unfortunately, they're just, they're not following standards. Well, they're rigorous for nonsense. It's taking yeah. you years to determine why exactly it's nonsense. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, that should that should never happen. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I mean, I can I can walk into sort of any field of math. I mean, now I'm probably pretty. My brain is crusty and old. I'd probably have a hard time of it. But certainly, when I was younger, you know, I can pick up any text and you you could drill down and figure it out. It might be exceedingly painful, but I know how to do it. But it's yeah. just with this stuff, it's like, it's just anything you hit something hard, it's just a blank wall. And because they're skipping steps and they're, they're, not, they're not writing things out properly. Interesting. Um, okay. The other observation was, or, or kind of a follow-up question, trade might be the wrong word, but did, it, did this knowledge, aside from being able to explain things more clearly, did it result in you doing or not doing trades that you would that you know that in a different way that than before you had learned this stuff did it actually change your trading or just your or only just the way you explain things um the i mean it it's sort of i i think it'd be a bit hard to say that i mean at, at you know because it wasn't that long before i, I learned mmt before i left mm. so i i can't say there was a huge amount of time but uh, I, I would say it avoids making dumb mistakes. I mean, yeah. that would be it. But the thing is, I wouldn't have made those dumb mistakes in the first place. Like positioning for a Japanese default, uh, the weakness of the euro area. But the thing is, I mean, these are all things I sort of knew about before. So the like the big macro stuff, not really. The, the, the issue, I think, you know, probably like quantitative easing. See, that's probably where... Uh, it would have, you know, the largest difference is the whole, oh, they're printing money thing. So I avoided, I, I said, no, that's nonsense. And I don't know from with, without, with sort of, without the sort of MMT knowledge, it might've been possible. I would have fallen in with, uh, everyone else. So, yeah, they're printing money. This is bad. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I was pretty much an, you know, non, non monstrous cause I looked at the data, but, uh, I, I would say that's it. Like that's the one I said, nah, it's not going to work. And certainly from the research, but 
the recovery being slow. Uh, that that you sort of saw. Although to be honest, uh, I I had a bias towards uh, a slow recovery, and I I'm not really f- acting as a forecaster now, and. I was surprised by the speed of the recovery, but it was also a much faster, I mean, it was a much stronger fiscal uh, response than I expected, and it was more durable than I expected. And uh, I, I mean, basically, I, I, I was wrong about the number of business failures. So, uh, but I don't know if that's MMT. That was just me being, you know, not really a forecaster. But otherwise, I would say it's mainly in the, the area of avoiding mistakes. But for mo- for making money, what I did in rates, it's really relative value, and uh, there's not. And it's you just have to be not totally wrong about the macro background, and it's it's how you actually make money. You you have to be able to find opportunities, and mispricings, and the MMT is not really about that. Okay, um, just just for context of what you were talking about before, you said that, that you were surprised at the how quickly recovery was, and that fewer businesses failed than you thought. You're talking about coronavirus coronavirus the, the okay, 20 okay. the 2020 so like i certainly i mean the premise of my book was that you would have because uh, it was written basically during the lockdowns of 2020 it, mm-hmm. publication came a bit later and so i had i mean obviously i it was in the first few months it was like summer 2020 so there was at the time almost no data on anything that was happening because it was just uh, trickling in it was just the first shock so uh i was i was more pessimistic perhaps than i should have been about the economy on the other side but uh, i i i mean i had no idea of, mm-hmm. of what would happen in, in the thing. And I, I didn't attempt to do a forecast, partly because it's a book. Um, you know, it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's bad enough. Like it, it might take six months to finish off the book and then, uh, Doing a forecast, even if you're right, no one cares about my forecast for 2021 and 2022. So, and that's the thing is, I want to keep selling the book. So, I generally, <laughs> I generally stayed out of the uh, forecasting business because I want, I want my what I'm writing to have some durability. Sure, but uh, the 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 overall premise is that we might have a slow recovery. Uh, has it's it's actually inflation control, which. Uh, I mean, you could sort of, I don't know if I wrote about it, but it was, it was sort of, you could see there's going to be disruptions on the supply side. But, uh, um, you know, I didn't attempt to forecast it once again. But if, if I had forecasted, I'm pretty sure I would have been surprised by the, the, the inflation level. Okay. Um, one last question about like kind of you and your book, and that is, can you describe the journey of deciding to write the book? Um, and also, yeah. just a just a minor kind of aside that I'm personally interested in is what software I presume that you used some kind of software or language to yeah. compose um, the book itself. Um, I'll I'll deal with the uh, the language. It's actually all Microsoft Word. I mean, I used oh. to use uh, LaTeX. That's La- yeah, that's like, kind like, of the yeah. That's what I use for my thesis, all my academic work. But uh, it it has its advantages. But not actually in in the environment because the books go to um, for for an an ebook is a essentially a giant web page or there well each chapter is like a web page they're all bound together into a zip file and they just have a proprietary name for it but and Word 
documents, I think now are basically also uh, XTML or XHTML or or whatever. So they're close. But Word definitely, if you crank up the grammar settings, it's actually a pretty good media proofreader. Like it, hmm. it will catch. I mean, you can you can hire people on the internet to uh, proofread for you, and they'll charge you five dollars an hour. And what what a lot of them do is they just run, they just <laughs> crank, they just crank up the settings on Word and they just use that. And uh, and to be honest, it's pretty good. It, it catches uh, a lot of sentence structures falls, and so the spell checker. So with with like LaTeX, you don't have that level of quality. And, and basically, you you do have to know how to format it to get it into an ebook. Uh, for for the paperback, it goes through. I use InDesign, but that's uh, like it has to be done in InDesign. You don't write in design; you're just formatting because the t- to to lay out a book properly on pages, if if you have a figure, like if you have you know charts, like I do, you it's it's a it's a challenge to get it right. If if I were writing fiction, you could you could pretty much actually just upload a, a word document, do some formatting, thing, they could actually give you the paperback, and it's going to be okay. But uh, if if you're worried about looking professional for a book you've you've got to make sure like you don't have like two words on an otherwise empty page you know you have to you have to squeeze that up into the previous page and so on and so forth you have you have to have the the layout but see that that you need uh, a good layout software uh to do that but anyways in terms of the the process the process was slow because um, I wanted I wanted to do an MMT primer. That was always my plan, and but my my feeling was is that I really wanted to sort of work, have a textbook or something to back me up, and so I was waiting for the MMT textbook uh, from uh, Ray Mitchell and uh, Watts, and that was delayed. I mean, that I mean, I talked to them when I was still in finance uh, and say, "Oh, it's coming." So uh, it it was delayed much later. And to be honest, I probably should just went on without it. But I said, "I'm going to wait for it and wait for it." And, because I wanted to be able to say, look, these are my, because I, I want, my books are short. They're, they're, um, they're novella length, uh, mm-hmm. as opposed to, as opposed to a novel, like it's about 30,000, 40,000 words. They're, they're brief. It's, it's much easier for editing. It's, it's dense. I, I have no pressure. I don't, you know, it's, I'm publishing myself. I, I don't say like for, to go into a bookstore, I would need much thicker books, but I'm not aiming to go through bookstores. So my books are too specialized. So I just say, look, what is the absolute minimum size book I have and cover what I want so that you can read it quickly? And so that that's sort of my objective. But I want to say, look, if you want more, you know, here are some other things you can read. So I said, and I, I wanted that textbook as a backup. So anyways, the, their textbook came out. And so I started it, and then uh, the coronavirus hit. So, mm-hmm. well, that that basically said, okay, fine. So I sort of worked that in as a theme. Like, there's sort of a, uh, okay, I didn't obviously have too much information, but it was sort of, you know, I, I, it gave it gave me sort of a bit of a theme for discussion. 
Although, you know, for a lot of it, it's just straight MMT. It's just a straight MMT primer. But, and uh, the, the other thing I wanted to do is I, everyone argues about MMT. So one of the things I wanted to say, look, I'm going to have a chapter of critiques. And because I, I figure in the long run, A, you know, that it's probably the thing that, people are going to go after the most and it, it all it, it puts it a bit in context like if, if i sort of you know you explain mmt for a lot of people they'll say okay fine but the it doesn't really click until you contrast and compare but i i prefer not to just uh like i'd like to actually explain mmt itself without continuously referring back to well Okay, fine, we get it. Neoclassical economics is wrong, but you know we shouldn't just be beating up on that all day. Like, it just bloats everything out, and you have all these weird arguments. Just say, look, this is. You write your piece, ignore what the other people say, but then later on, say, look, what are the critiques? And then you can say, okay, now we can put this into context, because without that, I mean, cause that's what people see. Anyone who sees uh, MMT if you're on the internet, they see people arguing about it. So you might might as well address that. And so that was another sort of. Uh, thing that I wanted to uh, slot into the book. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 see, a traditional author has no choice. If you're with a big publisher, you have a certain amount of time you know, that they can get you into bookstores. And if you don't sell the books... If you don't you know if your books aren't selling you're going to be no longer in the bookstore the the shelf space in a bookstore is at an extreme premium so they they have to do a big publicity surge to to keep their books on the shelf and so they have no choice but these book tours but realistically most of my books are way too specialized it's not going to you know People are going to be ordering it online anyways, and, and the sales are decent. I can't complain. They're not huge. I'm not a young adult fiction writer um, <laughs> or romance. No, they they make way, you know way more sales than myself, but uh, they they sell. But the thing is, it's a steady. There's no there's no big uh, publicity push. All right. Um, okay. Okay. All right. So thank you. Let, let's switch. Unless there's something more you wanted to say, let's switch to uh, uh, just some which I think are relatively self relatively uh, specific economics questions. Okay. Um, some inspired from your book. Okay. So so question number one is in uh, section five point three of your book called Rhetorical Tricks and Money Printing, you say the following. MMT proponents argue that the issuance of money must precede its return to government via taxes or bond issuance. This logical point is given considerable weight in discussions. I am heretical with regards to the MMT consensus in that I am concerned that this point can lead to largely semantic debates. I prefer to emphasize default risk analysis that results from operations analysis. And my question is the following. I believe that the MMT's consolidated view makes the statement money must proceed money must be spent before it can return to government the consolidated view makes that always true as i understand it but a lot of non-mmt people consider the government not as consolidated and when you consider it not as consolidated that assertion can talk can turn into very detailed debates and i think that that's what you're suggesting am i correct well, I mean, there's the consolidation on consolidation, but there, there, the the problem is proceed. The um, uh, the, the day zero 
Like if you were creating a brand new country from scratch, then it then it would be true. Let's say we're going to create a brand new uh, I, I'm let's say we create a brand new fiat currency. And boom, it comes out of existence with no pre-existing financial system. I, you'd probably have to like uh, settlers on Mars type thing would you know could do this because it'd be very hard to do this in the real world. Maybe you had an island or something like that. But the if we start talking about the real world, previous day like you know before you were a fiat currency, they were usually a metallic currency. They, they were you know at least for the modern countries I'm aware of. You you grew out of uh, you know various gold standard institutions, so the 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 issue was is you did have money that grew out of a previous fiat current you know, non fiat currency at a uh, commodity currency. So then you start running into problems mm. about okay where did it come from? So like you you can't go back to day zero. I mean that's that's sort of the issue that like. It, you know what if you say look if we take a particular day the the problem i guess for the sort of the mmt story is that the the governments do start the day with the balance from the previous day and uh that go the balance goes up and down so uh yeah i don't know it's it's the you know it's it's just a circular flow the government creates money and it destroys money and so uh, saying like it's, it's for something that's going in a circle like that, uh, it, it doesn't really make sense about talking about what came first. So that that is sort of the issue, because because I mean, I, I, there is a guy I don't know on Twitter. I don't I, I wasn't too greatly impressed. I never really dug into it, but I think he did like a. I don't know, look like a 50 page article going blah, blah, blah. Let's look what happened in Canada. And, and that's the thing is that uh, it, it says, you know, now, now you're starting to debate, you know, what, what exactly is the meaning of, you know, these Canadian statutes and blah, you know, who cares, <laughs> you know? So I think you have to say, why are we interested in this in the first place? And the ultimately, it's going to be default, and that's it. That that basically, the governments do have the ability. Uh, there isn't really a limit on how much money or how much debt they can issue, other than some very basic, like the, like, you know, they they couldn't just say, oh, I'm gonna borrow 30 quadrillion dollars today and that that would that would fail but if you look at anything plausible amount of spending they can finance it i mean it's it'll get financed it'll get the money debt will get created the flows will be circular and there's there's no real problem with that like it's what's going to go wrong and you can't really point to like you could say yeah okay maybe you know fifth 11 quadrillion dollars okay that's maybe too much but the thing is why do you need 11 quadrillion dollars for you don't mm. i mean you, you you know it's how much are you going to spend in a you know a, a one week period and you it really comes down to what you know is there a limit and the, and the reason why there's no limit because in a sense yeah they're creating the money that you know it's, it's coming out first they, they they have to finance the like when they when they borrow they have to extend financing to allow the auction to go through 
like in my in my book, uh, my first book, it's MMT inspired. Like, there's no doubt that it's related to MMT, but it wasn't. It was sort of plain line. Like, I did I didn't attempt to go too far. I did I didn't say this is the MMT view because I said, well, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be claiming that I'm speaking on behalf. I'm just saying, look, this is this is my you know the way I see it. I'm inspired by MMT. It's clear. It's not stuff, but but I, I explained it in my own words type thing. And uh, I use a Canadian example and. The, the the way Canada used to be, uh, there there were no bank reserves. Like the you the at the end of the day, the banks had a zero balance with with the Bank of Canada, or the, well the payment system technically. And basically, in order uh, every day, all the transactions have to zero out between the the. The private banks and the consolidated government, everything has to net to zero. And so if the government borrows, if the, the Ministry of Finance, they say, oh, we're going to borrow, the Bank of Canada has no choice but to, in essence, ship cash the other way to, to allow that uh, auction to go through. And uh, just that's it. And, you know, that that's the, the, the real idea, which you don't really think about it. It's not... You know, oh well, they have to borrow it from the private. So actually, no, it's uh, that balance is zero, so it's gonna. It's actually technically nets out. I mean, it, it's 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 a question of uh, the the form. Like, what do they want? Money? Do they want bonds? That's that sort of, and that that comes down to preferences in the private sector. Okay, but uh, okay, I'm gonna do one more, and then I'm gonna save the rest for after. Uh, you say in your book, you say. Under uh, a section called legal analysis, you say, as one might expect from institutionalists, considerable care is taken in the analysis of the legal framework of governmental finance. This is in contrast to the assume something is true strategy preferred by many conventional economists. And then you conclude the trillion dollar coin is probably the best known implication of this research. My question is, are you saying that we we discovered the trillion the, the the trillion dollar coin was discovered simply because we chose to search in the haystack and we just happened to stumble across the needle. Is that what you're saying? Um, I I would guess. I mean, the, uh, was it Raul Carrillo? I'm not. I'm not. But I mean, I believe it was actually a, a law student who Carlos did, Mucha. Carlos Mucha. Yeah. You know, it's it is an interesting sort of. You know, okay, by the way, there's this thing in the law. It might have been intended, but uh, it certainly wasn't common knowledge. So uh, how how widely known it was before, but certainly it was not, not remarked upon uh, until, you know, that, that came up uh, in discussion. So you know, it, it, I, I certainly hadn't heard about it. Uh, and that seemed, you know, from what I've seen, it, it was a surprise to most people. But uh, yeah, you, there like the trillion dollar coin, I guess that one was very much because because that is you know a very specific thing in U.S. legislation, and um, it's it it probably doesn't exist in any other country, right? So it it is a little it, it's not sort of a general principle, you know. If you want to look, let's say at Canada, you'd have to look at okay, what what's in the guts the various government financing acts and regulations? Are there any sorts of uh, similar 
legal shticks in there. And, and in most cases, like from what I've seen, no one really knows the limits. Like they're just sort of, they, they operate a certain way. They stay within certain parameters and they don't really ever test the limits. And so, you know, no one, no one actually even knows what would like there's no good case law okay but what if x happens and it's it's never come up and uh, the multiple laws are ambiguous so it it's it will depend i mean it's it's a legal analysis it depends where you are and the only people that could give you a good opinion on that are lawyers and not certainly not economists, certainly not me. But like, for example, one of the things I saw was uh, a research piece by uh, you know an investment bank talking about, let's say, the United Kingdom, and they went through various things, and they said, yeah, it look it looks like there's no circumstance under which the bank, like if the the Treasury writes a check. The Bank of England doesn't have the, you know, the legal authority to bounce the check. So even though they have a very, you know, they have all these procedures about, you know, how the government finance work uh, that supposedly create a limit, there's no actual way to bounce the check. So like all, all their limits are just self-imposed rules. And, you know, if, if they aren't followed, well, actually nothing happens in the real world because the check can't bounce. I mean, that could have been incorrect. I mean, maybe that legal analysis is incorrect, but that's the thing. That's a legal issue. And uh, studying stochastic calculus is going to help you with that. It's, hmm. it's purely, you know, what do the laws say? And it's not even the people working there. It's got to be, it's got to be lawyers because because the people working there just assume and they you know the certainly the central bankers they want to believe it, re- it works a certain way and they don't necessarily care what the law says so that's it's there's that there's the legal issues and, and just as also the mechanics which are sort of well understood and the people in the banks but every, nobody worries about uh normally okay okay um all right so let's let's move on to the the main topic we can always go back to a few more if necessary at the end, and that is, um, I wanted you to come on because of the, the the section in your book on bad on good faith and bad faith critiques. And I I had also written a post with what I see as good faith critiques, uh, probably maybe seven of them. And when I wrote all these notes for these questions for for today kind of surprised myself that it's it's almost more psychology and sociology than actual practical examples of academic criticism. Um, but in a sense, that's kind of understandable because I can kind of wrap my head around that stuff better than I can the very specific critiques that like Thomas Pally is giving. You know, I, I don't have my head around like why what he's saying is why his critiques are wrong and so on. Um so hopefully we can take like these these tactics. So these are like the negative tactics that crit- critics use, bad faith critics use in my view, and hopefully we can kind of link them to things that are more relevant and maybe, you know, concepts. So um, I'm going to start with my definition of a good faith critique, and I'm going to ask you if, to see if you agree with this. And my summary of a good faith critique is just essentially they treat the MMT economists and academics as if they are smart and kind people and of good faith themselves. They're not, the MMT economists are not stupid or evil. Uh, and in other words, 
they they are worth listening to their work is worth reading and they define their theory via their scholarly work and anything aside from that in my view is not good faith and like i just read thomas pally's like you link to thomas pally's i think it's 2019 critique of mmt forget what it's called man oh man his tone and his attitude and his his insults shine much much brighter to me than any of his academic things yeah. So yeah. do you agree with that summary of, a, of what? Well, I, I, I guess there's sort of two issues. Like the, I, I, would, I would sort of say you, what you're describing is the attitude uh, behind a good faith versus a bad faith critique. Um, like why would someone do a good faith critique? But you don't necessarily, I mean, it's possible to do a good faith critique of someone, even if you think they're, I mean, you know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a, a big fan of a lot of libertarians. Let's say uh, Rothbard, who I, I, I don't know too much about him. I think he was a raving neo-Nazi at the end, but I'm not sure. I, I don't know. I read, you know, one of his books, so he, he didn't seem too bad. So, but in that book, per se, he was just a, a loony.
Today I talk with author, financial analyst, and applied mathematician Brian Romanchuk. We talk about his journey from mainstream economics to Minsky to MMT, and his experience writing the 2021 book Modern Monetary Theory and the Recovery. He also describes some of his concerns regarding the common assertion that government spending always comes before taxation. This is part one of a three-part conversation. In parts two and three, we discuss the many varied techniques used by bad faith critics of MMT, which more broadly are the techniques used by simple bullies who want their followers to think that they're not. The second two parts were inspired by chapter five in Brian's book, his recent appearance on MMT podcast, and my own post documenting several good faith critiques and the MMT responses to them, a link to which can be found in the show notes. Regarding the assertion that government spending always precedes taxation, Brian's concerns are not related to its accuracy. In my view, it remains a valuable and important insight. Rather, the problem is that it's a cycle that can only be resolved by going back, in the words of Fadl Kaboob, to the beginning of the beginning. After that, it's so close to a chicken and egg question that in the context of public conversations, it can sometimes cause more problems than it solves. Instead, Brian suggests asking why the assertion is so important. The answer is the assurance that the national government, the currency issuer, can never default on its obligations. In other words, regardless whether the chicken or the egg came first, the government can always pay its bills. If you like what you hear, then I hope you might consider becoming a monthly patron of Activist MMT. Patrons have exclusive access to several full-length episodes right now. A full list, each with a brief highlight, can be found in the show notes. Patrons also get the opportunity to ask my academic guests questions, such as my recent episode with Warren Mosler. They also support the development of my large and growing collection of Learn MMT resources. To become a patron, you can start by going to patreon.com slash activistmmt. Every little bit helps a little bit, and it all adds up to a lot. Thanks. And now, on to my conversation with Brian Romanchuk. Enjoy. Enjoy. 